Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Sam Kelly and in this episode I'll be speaking to Lucas Ricker, author of Break On Through, Radical Psychiatry and the American Counterculture. If you weren't aware, we publish a podcast every Friday and if you'd like to reach out with thoughts or comments, please do so via the usual social media channels. Thanks again to Kristen Galino for our soundtrack uh, and now on to the conversation with Lucas. Lucas Ricker is the George Erdang Chair in the History of Pharmacy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the co-editor-in-chief of Social History of Alcohol and Drugs, an interdisciplinary journal. Uh, He's also the author of Strange Trips, Science, Culture and the Regulation of Drugs. And most importantly, the reason why we're chatting today, he is the author of Break On Through, Radical Psychiatry in the American Counterculture, which MIT published in October with a paperback edition coming out in September. Hi, thanks for chatting to me. Hey, Sam. Yeah, it's good to be here. Your book traces some of the challenges that psychiatry comes up against in the 60s and 70s and all the kind of political social movements that are fermenting around that time in America. And I'm going to ask you about them. But before we get onto that, could you give me an outline of what psychiatry looks like in post-war America before these kind of shifts take place? Sure. Yeah, I can try. You know, before I even get into that, though, there have always been challenges in mental health and psychiatry. And mental health is such a significant and pressing issue right now. And I'd I'd be an idiot if I didn't just say quickly, during COVID-19, you know, we have to think that this is going to be even more pressing um, with mental health services and psychiatric services in the U.S. and the U.K. where you are. Um, having to deal with potential rising rates of uh, depression and suicide that accompanies things like social isolation and, you know, kind of like the anxiety that we're all struggling with. So I think we just have to recognize that right off the top, you know, the, you know, the, the current discussions about mental health are ongoing and, you know, it's part of a, a longer history that I try and and lay out in the book, the 60s and the 70s. So some of the challenges that we're facing right now um, were some of the discussions that were going on back at the, you know, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. So I just wanted to flag that up very quickly because I think it's important. So there's sort of a longer chain uh, of events. But so Sam, you asked, so what were some of the big challenges, right? In post-war psychiatry, what was the, the major issues? Let's see, I suppose the field of American psychiatry was struggling with sort of a legacy of uh, sometimes really strange, bizarre, inhumane treatments. You know, you don't have to go any further than insulin shock therapy or lobotomies, misuse of lobotomies, or, you know, inhumane treatments, you know, restraining people with leather straps and sticking them in, in uh, cells and, and charging people to, to walk by. Uh, I mean, by bedlam, right? So psychiatry was dealing with sort of this legacy and how it, what kind of services it had offered to people. So I suppose, Um, One of the longest running debates in mental illness has been sort of the struggle between biological origins of mental illness and how do you actually locate mental illness in in the body or in the brain. 
So that was uh, really coming to the foreground in, in the 50s and the 60s. Anne Harrington has written about this recently in her book, The Mind Fixer, Mind Fixers, I think it's called. So yeah, by the 60s, which is you know what I'm talking about in my book, biologically oriented psychiatrists are competing with proponents of psychoanalysis. And you know, there are lots of other issues at the same time. There's deinstitutionalization, where more and more people are leaving giant state asylums because you've got the rise of psychopharmacology. And so there are debates about how they're going to be treated in community mental health clinics outside of the walls of these, of these uh, large asylums. Yeah, there's a whole host of challenges. Uh, I guess as well what I wanted to ask is about, so that you kind of touched on it there in your discussion of how do you locate mental health and how do you locate mental illness? And I guess one of the core tensions that I think a lot of people have when they think about this subject is between individualizing a problem and to what degree psychiatry, psychoanalysis has to incorporate certain political critiques. And there's a kind of tension in the kind of normalizing practice of therapy and also the kind of desire for kind of radical political social change. So I wonder what's the relationship look like at this time between things like psychiatry, psychoanalysis and the Black Power Movement, the Women's Liberation Movement, the, you know, you've got the Stonewall Riots and the Gay Liberation Movement. And so there's all these kind of different types of subject or person who might previously been kind of pathologized or in what way does their political mobilization start to reshape how we think about mental health? Yeah. Really important question, really good question. So I have a colleague, friend uh, at my former university at Strathclyde in, in Glasgow, who, his name is Matt Smith. He's writing a book about social psychiatry right now. So social psychiatry was sort of like one sort of area of psychiatry in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s uh, that was focused on addressing socioeconomic issues. Uh, as sort of one of the underlying factors um, with mental health or poor mental health. And what Matt argues in some of his papers and in his forthcoming book is that social psychiatry went away in the 1960s uh, and that what you begin to see is that rise of the biologically oriented ethos. And so it's, it's about locating individualizing mental health in the body rather than dispersing it out through broader society, thinking about determinants of health and you know, larger interventions uh, population-wise. So that's one way of thinking about your question. Another way of, of thinking about identity markers in the 1960s um, is that they're in flux. So whether or not it's ethnicity or sexuality or or whatever else you're seeing that these identity markers are sort of changing and that there are there's more activism around uh, social progress and advancing human rights and this isn't something that's happening in isolation this is happening in uh, American mental health services as well whether or not it's psychiatry or psychology and I suppose I should just say very quickly, this isn't something that's just happening in the United States. This is happening all around the world. So you have a larger sort of uh, human rights movement during this period of time. 
So, you know, homosexuality, feminism, civil rights, they're all bound up in this sort of landmark moment in the 1960s, 1970s. And this necessarily impacts the way professionals in mental health are thinking about the patient and thinking about how they're going to treat the patient. So I guess I can give you one example, uh, if, you know, if you'll, you know, permit me. Um, so sexuality and feminism, right? So psychoanalysis and psychopharmacological interventions were criticized strongly with the rise of second wave feminism. Freud uh, and his focus on sexual fantasies was criticized, but then, you know, quote unquote, mother's little helpers uh, were also criticized. And so mother's little helpers were benzodiazepines uh, for those folks who don't know. So basically feminism and sexuality are sort of linking with the way uh, psychiatrists and psychologists are thinking about patients. That's just, that's just one example. Yeah. Could I ask you to talk about uh, another example in the form of, I guess, the colonial race debates that are kind of going on at the time? In France and Algeria, you have someone like Franz Fanon, who's really getting into these questions about the colonial subject. But where are those debates happening in the US? And how does the Vietnam War come into these? Could you talk about that a little bit? So, I mean, I'm no expert on post-colonial, uh, decolonial psychiatry. There are some amazing scholars out there who are writing about French psychiatry and, and other places, um, whether or not it's in Eastern Europe or Argentina. But what I will say is that the American med students or psychology students who you know, want to get into the mental health marketplace are pulling on different threads from around, the, from around the planet, from around the world. So they're pulling on Foucault, they're pulling from uh, France Fanon, they're pulling from uh, Artie Lang in, in the UK uh, and other places. And so there's sort of this melting pot of psychiatric ideas that are being reinterpreted by uh, American radicals in, in the 1960s and the 1970s. And, you know, some of it has to do with militarization, so, you know, uh, and, and war. So you, you brought up the Vietnam War. Yeah, I mean, you can't underestimate the importance of the Vietnam War and how it influenced the countercultural movement in the United States and I guess across the globe even more, more generally. I make the case in the book that it was sort of like a glue a super glue for a lot of different uh, single issue protesters and it helped to bind together different activists, whether or not it was in, in the black power movement or second wave feminism or in, in med schools, right? You know, these med students uh, who wanted to specialize in psychiatry, they started thinking along the same lines as second wave feminists and, and people in the civil rights movement. So there's a real sort of, again, I'll use the term sort of melting pot of ideas. And the Vietnam War is, is really crucial. And how does psychiatry respond to it? Because obviously you have a huge influx of people that have trauma and, and it has a huge impact on those people as well. But as you say, kind of American culture and global culture on a sort of huge scale. 
how does psychiatry kind of integrate that? Are there any changes that happen in the way things are practiced or the kind of theoretical considerations that are going on? What, how does it all change in response to that? Yeah, for sure. I, um, so I wrote a, a wee bit about this on the MIT Press Reader maybe a month or so ago. The Vietnam War was important in a couple of different ways for radical psychiatrists. So some radical psychiatrists who are, again, remember, these people are in the American Psychiatric Association. They're licensed practitioners. They suggested that, that their profession was colluding with the U.S. military in some way, you know, that they were essentially shining the warplanes and um, and polishing some of the bombs, that they were desensitizing the American public, and that they were helping with the war effort to put not too fine a point on it. So in the book, I talk about some of the sort of the literature, the pamphlets that these that these radical psychiatrists passed out um, at, at protests. Some of these then the protests were with their colleagues who were slightly more conservative or moderate, if you will. And some of the protests um, had to do with other issues. And so these pamphlets that they handed out talked about ending the, the draft uh, in the US, that these pamphlets talked about publicly demanding that the American Psychiatric Association end all complicity with the war in Southeast Asia. They suggested that psychiatrists who were actively involved should be basically should face expulsion from the profession. So they were saying, so these radical psychiatrists were saying that, you know, they had to get more active, that they had to be more involved with, you know, the U.S.'s military's role abroad. I mean, I think that's pretty fascinating, to be honest with you, to think about these psychiatrists throwing off their neutrality. They're getting out of the treatment room and they're saying, you know, we need to start marching. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly one of the most interesting things I think about radical psychiatry, anti-psychiatry is I think the dividing line is to what degree you are willing to claim that you're some kind of neutral actor. And all these kind of like shifts in theory that come after that acknowledgement they seem to kind of slowly, all, all of them seem to be acknowledging the positionality of the psychiatrist and to what degree they can accept the political dynamics that are making their way into the treatment. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, it's a really good point. Um, a lot of the, the earliest radical psychiatry literature is about um, you know unshackling themselves and unshackling the profession from this neutral stance that they need to be more engaged with the pressing issues of their day for them it was war and of course there are other major issues and just like today it's you know covid-19 and and so the, the idea of making sure that they were forward facing and not just passive um, really resonated with me when I got my hands dirty in the archives. Yeah, I, I want to ask you as well about another kind of current that's running through all these times, which is sort of experimentation with psychedelics and other kind of mind altering substances. And it's another one, a debate that's flaring up again. I mean, psychedelics specifically have been in vogue now for a couple of years with people across disciplines and political spectrums. How does the kind of drug culture of the 1670s work its way into psychiatry? Hmm. Yeah, really, really good question. First of all, I, yeah, that's, that's a tough question because 
I'd always say that there's some sort of medications involved. Uh, and on the one hand, you've got sort of this uh, psychopharmacological revolution in the 1950s. Uh, so you have these new treatment modalities that are created. You've got major and minor tranquilizers uh, that are developed. Antipsychotics are hitting the market. You're seeing new blockbuster drugs that are marketed to women. You know, things like everyone knows about Prozac and certain antidepressants, but, you know, the precursors were in the 50s and the 60s. And so psychiatrists were prescribing uh, certain drugs like Miltown or Librium uh, to, to their patients. My friend and colleague David Hertzberg writes about this in his book, Happy Pills. That's where I, you know, he's talking about the mother's little helpers that the Rolling Stones are bringing up um, and writing about. Those drugs are always there, right? But running alongside those drugs, Sam, are the psychedelics in the 50s and the 60s. So LSD is the one that probably most people recognize. That's discovered in 38 by Albert Hoffman. And from 38 onwards, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of papers are written about uh, its use in psychiatry and its use for all sorts of issues. Um, so let's see, it, it's tested in palliative care, which I write about in the book. It, it's used um, for intimacy issues, whether or not it's you know sexual dysfunction or um, uh, marriage counseling. It's used to deal with traumas, uh, to help with certain breakthroughs. So it's there. You know, 1950s, 1960s, um, psych psychedelics are part of the standard legitimate practice. And I know that MIT is coming out with a new book, American Trip, and that's coming out next year, sort of builds on the new history that's being written about this. But a different book by MIT Press, I believe is called High Weirdness. Did I get the name right? Yeah, I was speaking to Eric a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And as well, John Troyer, who wrote Technologies of the Human Corpse, there's kind of similar questions about psychedelics being used as a very legitimate form of, you know, psychotherapy, psychiatry, and then kind of along comes the war on drugs and it kind of goes covert, kind of goes underground. And you're, you're kind of seeing people going back and having to dig into the work of these people that were operating in various legitimate and illegitimate ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm looking forward to reading uh, Troyer's book. A bunch of scholars... Uh, have fleshed out some of this psychedelic history um, using brand new records. So, you know, solid, great books have been written by Johns Hopkins Press and Yale Press. I'm mates with some of those authors. It's a tension between what's going on in the medical marketplace, legitimate, and what's going on in the quote-unquote recreational side or the non-medical uh, side. Of course, as government records show uh, here in the U.S., a lot of psychiatrists were looking to weaponize psychedelics. I talk a little bit about that in, in my book. Some of these folks in the sci sciences um, in government thought that, you know, different people could be brainwashed or uh, reprogrammed or uh, tortured more successfully with psychedelics. Other psychiatrists uh, speculated that LSD or psilocybin mescaline or what have you 
could unlock certain parts of the brain. So they might be able to lift up objects uh, or control other people. This is like the science fiction MK Ultra story that a lot of people kind of know, but this is the real deal. And there are records that substantiate it. And I talk a little bit about it in, in the book. It's that's that's high weirdness. Yeah. Is there another risk as well with psychedelics that kind of going back to how you locate mental illness as a structural question or an individual question is that if you kind of strip psychedelics from the culture or the kind of social dimension to which it was being utilized, it kind of becomes, like you say, weaponized in a different kind of way. What, what are some of the risks? How do we think through that dynamic? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a little bit, I've always sort of a bit of a cynic. I don't know. I'm criticized for that sometimes, but I'm a little worried right now about the return of, of certain psychedelics in a way. I see them as very legitimate tools right now in the medical marketplace, but I also see how they're being commercialized, very quickly commercialized. And, you know, there's a growing psychedelic tourism industry and maybe even a pop culture fascination with with psychedelic drugs. Um, Steve Jobs and Michael Pollan have, have, I think, helped to sort of raise public awareness of these. So I suppose what I'm driving at in a roundabout sort of way is that we're seeing maybe uh, a rehash of what was going on in the 60s and the 70s, where you're seeing psychedelic medicine as a potential viable therapy that could really help people on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got, I don't know, maybe not weaponization, but uh, certainly people wanting to capitalize on, on psychedelics and, and, you know, make bucks off of them. And probably that's the same with every drug, but it's, it's especially distasteful if you are working in, um, working in a clinic and you, you think that, you know, patients can, can really benefit from the use of certain psychedelics. Now, so that's one bit. But here's another thing. Some people might push back at me and say, Rick, you know, you're a dumbass. Basically, psychedelics, if they're made more widely available to, to people around the planet, and then some of these restrictions are taken away, then, you know, maybe we could see some positive changes um, with the environment or, or social dislocation or isolation. Maybe it could be transformative for people politically. So you see what I'm saying? I, mean, I haven't thought this through perhaps as well as I should, but... <laughs> No, it's, I'm similarly suspicious as well, because there's been a real kind of trend, I think, in kind of progressive discussions about, you know, these ideas that come kind of like acid communism and the kind of, you know, the radical transformity that comes with the psychedelic melting of the ego and, you know, that all the things that that opens up. But equally, I think you kind of have to be on guard where that is, you know, engaged with a similar enthusiasm by CEOs and what, what's kind of going on there. Yeah. Look, many universities, including my own here, um, UW-Madison, are exploring psychedelic medicines uh, and potential treatments. Psilocybin has been given breakthrough status as a potential treatment for major depressive disorder. It's a, a, 
approaching approval for the American marketplace. MDMA, we haven't even brought up MDMA yet. So methylene dioxy, uh, methamphetamine for, for folks, but also known as ecstasy. This is another one that could be in the medical marketplace very soon. So it's not like that this is like 10, 15 years away. Like major regulators, regulatory bodies in the United States have given the green light based on randomized controlled trials on the scientific method. So, you know, this is, Sam, this is happening. It's, it, it's, it's not like this is pie in the sky stuff any longer. So what I'm talking about in the book about the debate about psychedelic treatments, again, is very relevant to what's occurring in 2020 and then moving ahead. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things in the book, it's interesting. I wanted to ask you about to what degree you think any of them are resolved, because on the one hand, you like to think that things like the Black Power Movement and acceptance of LGBTQ people has become, for most people, thankfully, a kind of, yeah, of course, you know, that's part of being a kind of understanding person. But, you know, equally, that's a potentially quite a rose-tinted way to look at the world, especially at the minute. I wanted to ask you, do you think that a lot of the things that are kind of challenged in the 60s and 70s are, are resolved and kind of integrated in a helpful way? Or do you think they're still kind of... I wish I could say yes, Sam. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could say yes. If anything, I think there's more... F- this is going to come off as super negative. Sorry, but I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing... I'm seeing a lot of fracturing, you know, division between the rich and the poor, the, you know, the, the upper crust, the 1%. So the gap I see between the haves and the have-nots has, I, I think, widened, if anything, from the 1950s, 60s, 70s to the present, which is a real shame. And that leads to deaths of despair, a really popular, um, well-selling, well-researched book that's come out recently. You know, the, the idea that certain people who don't have means are more likely to succumb to, to suicide and, and yeah. depression. And again, I don't want to be incredibly negative, but even before the COVID-19 mm. pandemic, you know, we were struggling with mental health crises in higher education, rising rates of depression across the globe, warnings from the WHO. The Welcome Trust in the UK has launched uh, initiatives to radically rethink the way in which mental health is tackled. So if anything, I think that a lot of the issues that uh, radical psychiatrists were dealing with back then are issues that need to be engaged with uh, even more closely today. That could very well be the environment, that could very well be poverty, or it could be a sexism. I mean, we're seeing the Me Too movement. I mean, there's a, certainly a long way to go. And if anything, you know, the American election, presidential election is showing that this is still uh, an intractable issue. So yeah, I wish I could be more positive, man. Yeah. If I could attempt to put a silver line on that, I guess maybe one thing that might come out of COVID is in a kind of popular consciousness, there is, again, an understanding that mental health isn't a kind of neutral biological thing that just happens to some people, that it's bound up in race and class. And in the same way that you kind of see in a physical ailment such as COVID affecting people who have less access to healthcare. I don't know, maybe there's room to kind of push that argument further and say, actually, that's... It's not just when a pandemic hits. I, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. 
I think I make the case at the end of the book that if I remember correctly, um, that, you know, we need to balance personalized medicine and personalized approaches with focus on public health and mental health uh, within the, the wider public, whether or not it's in the UK, uh, where you are, or whether or not that's, that's here in, in the US. There, there was one thing I was going to ask you about, but it feels maybe a little bit crass now that we talked about something so important. But I did kind of want to ask you about some of the other new age stuff that comes out of this time as well, because it isn't just very necessary and radical kind of challenges from, I suppose, political and social organisations of people. There's also slightly less usual. You know, could you talk about some of those movements that perhaps are less palatable today and perhaps seem a little bit odder and where they fit into this picture? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't think it's crass. I mean, my, my, my sense is that in the 60s and 70s, you had a real sort of experimental moment with uh, alternative mental health therapies. You know, that could very well include primal scream therapy, which was developed in California. And this is uh, Arthur Janoff created this. The, the idea is that, you know, by letting loose, essentially getting red-faced and loud and screaming, that you're going to redress some of these uh, repressed emotions, help you, you know, go through sort of a healing process. So uh, Arthur Janoff, he's a legitimate mental health practitioner. And um, I mean, he felt uh, as though Primal Scream, and he, I mean, he sold hundreds of thousands of copies of his book with this method. You know, he felt that it could actually cure physical ailments as well as uh, emotional ailments. So he, he's making the case too that getting loud and sweaty and busting through uh, some of your traumas could be helping with, with your, your, your physical self. So that's one example. You know, another example um, would be transactional analysis, which is developed by Eric Byrne, again in California. Uh, transactional analysis is still extremely popular. And I wouldn't necessarily call it bizarre or weird or anything far from. I, I mean, it was, it was mostly just taking Freudian psychoanalysis and going in a slightly different uh, direction and, and just using sort of a new terminology. But then besides that, I talk about in the book uh, Scientology. Scientology is a hot topic for a lot of people in the United States, uh, in the UK, around the world. And the idea that L. Ron Hubbard um, was creating sort of an anti-psychiatry, a new religious movement that also helped people work through their, their, their mental health traumas. Mm. Scientology is really interesting, especially because it does replicate some of the conditions for analysis and psychotherapy really explicitly in its kind of one-on-one working through memories but I mean having done so if you talk to a Scientologist about that they they don't want to get into the fact that it's similar to therapy they really want to define it as something completely different. I mean you hit the nail on the head I mean it is in some ways duplicative Mm. where you're just sort of you're riffing off of what we would sort of consider a stereotypical one-on-one patient practitioner uh, yeah. relationship. And some of the documents that I, I went through to, to write the book were just off the charts interesting. How Scientology literature criticized psychiatry, how L. Ron Hubbard went after the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, with all guns blazing 
some of the language he uses in uh, criticizing psychiatry is wild. It's just wild. Yeah. Calling psychiatrists murderers. It's, um, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. There's kind of dangerous territory as well with the anti-Semitic hangover of some of the criticisms pegged at Freud and the depiction of psychoanalysis as a Jewish conspiracy, which is, of course, just beyond the pale nonsense. But It's a good point. And, it's, you know, some of these these tropes were enduring. These, these stereotypes died very slowly. This has been really great chatting to you and I could definitely talk for longer, but I think we've got some really good stuff there. And I was wondering if there's kind of anything you wanted to finish on with regards to some of the stuff you brought up earlier, if you're kind of happy to leave it there. You know what? I think I'm pretty happy to leave it there. I, I don't want to talk till I'm blue in the face and bore the listeners. Well, you, you definitely not bored me, so <laughs> I hope that's a good sign. Great. Well, thanks for chatting to me today. It's a really interesting book. It's been really great to chat to you. Yeah, great talking to you too, Sam. <laughs>